The verses that will be the focus of our attention today are going to be uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. But I want to begin reading in verse 12 and read all the way through verse 22 so that we sort of, uh, again, situate ourselves in the, the context of what's being said. Remember, this is the fourth of the five major discourses recorded in Matthew's Gospel. So we, we sort of keep all of chapter 18 together as a, as a discourse from our Lord. So beginning in verse 12, he said, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive, or how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and illuminate the word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and as the word is preached, you would be the preacher. You would be the worship leader. You would, you would tell of the goodness and the greatness of God as we study these verses. Again, help us to love the church and help us to love the Christ of the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Last week, as we studied verses 12 through 14, we could sort of summarize the point that we learned by saying, or even summarizing verse 14, it is not the will of God the Father that any, not a single one of His blood-bought children should ultimately fall away and perish. And we could chalk that up to God's revealed will, for He tells us here, it's not the will of my Father. And we could also chalk it up then to the decreed will, the, the secret will of God. We know that it's not God's will. He has not decreed that any of His children should ever fall away and should ever perish. We saw uh, Jesus in John's Gospel says, 
that no one can snatch any of us from the Father's hand. He also says that no one can snatch any of us from His hand. And so we saw that unity there. I and the Father are one. There is a unity between Father and Son in holding on to and keeping every one of God's children, every one of these little ones, every one of the sheep, until the end. Jesus says, of all that the Father has given me, I will lose none. He says, but I will raise it up on the last day. Ultimately, every one of God's children, elected from all eternity, redeemed by the atoning work of Christ, the work of that atonement and redemption applied by the Holy Spirit, none of them will fall. They will all be raised up. They will um, endure through the resurrection and spend eternity in heaven. Now, the question that we could ask of that, uh, that truth now to lead into this passage is this. If the Lord Jesus Christ is currently seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, by what means has He ordained to ensure that all of His people certainly persevere and are preserved in the faith until the end. He says, you cannot snatch them out of my hand. You cannot snatch them out of the Father's hand. But then he ascends to heaven. So what is he doing now to make sure that next week, if you're a Christian today, next Sunday, you'll still be a Christian? What is he, what's he doing? How does he do it? Well, the answer, and, and this is sort of a general thesis of today's sermon... The Lord Jesus Christ has purposed that His mystical body, that is the church, the local church, filled with His Holy Spirit and acting in accord with His Word, labor to preserve all of the sheep from falling and to protect the sheep from harm. He's purposed that the church work, labor to preserve and protect all of the sheep. Now this happens in, in numerous ways. There, there are many things that the church as a body does to make sure next week all of us are here. Unless somebody's sick or hurt, we'll all be here. We'll all be here to worship. Uh, the focus of our text today focuses on probably what is the least popular way that the church labors to preserve and protect the sheep from harm, and that is corrective church discipline. That's what we're reading about in these three verses, corrective church discipline. Now, corrective church discipline is prescribed in several passages throughout the New Testament specifically, and it gives us several scenarios, and it uses uh, multiple approaches to those various scenarios. Now, these verses deal with a specific situation, and they give us a proper procedure for that specific situation, and then they show us or we can glean from this, this passage the guaranteed goal within this situation. So those are going to be my three points. And if you have the sermon outline there, you can see it. Number one, the specific situation. Number two, the proper procedure for that situation. And then number three, we will see by implication the guaranteed goal of corrective church discipline. So first the specific situation. Again, when we read the New Testament, 
the New Testament spells out for us several different circumstances that call for corrective church discipline. And in each of those passages, it lays out a different process for handling that particular circumstance. Now, here's a problem, or a problem that could arise when a church looks at the wrong passage and uses the teaching from that passage to apply to a different situation. For example, if someone, um, and we'll get into this in more detail, but if someone is caught in, in open adultery, well, we don't run to Matthew 18 to figure out what to do. We run to a different passage. And so we need to understand the specific situation here. Notice that our Lord says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you. That's the specific situation. If your brother sins against you. So now let's look at the specific situation explained. The specific situation here that's being described by our Lord is a case of personal, probably private offense between two professing Christians within the church. Remember the context. We've seen this over and over. It is the covenant community. It is the people of God. Personal more than likely a private offense between two professing Christians within the church. So it does not involve the outside world, this, this situation. It is more than likely not bringing external reproach upon the church because the world doesn't know about it. And we're, we're going to see that that's important later. Um, this situation is not dealing with public figures like elders. Or in our day, we would say uh, public uh, podcasters, um, conference speakers, men who are in the public eye who are sort of the, the face of Christianity to the lost world. That's not what's being described here. This is two Christians in the church. One of them has sinned against the other. So now let's look at the specific situation proven in the original language. And if you're using uh, a New American Standard you'll see that the words against you, if your brother sins against you, those two words against you are not in some of the oldest manuscripts, which is, that carries some weight. If it's not in the oldest, that, that should, should strike us as strange. And even they're even left out of some modern English translations like the New American Standard, um, or they're at least italicized to let you know they're not in the original. If we're going to assume that this is a specific situation, a brother sinning against a brother, then we need to prove that those two words, if your brother sins against you, we need to be almost, if not absolutely certain, that they should be there. So I want to use sort of two lines of thinking to prove that. First, notice that Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Or if we subtract the, those two words, if your brother sins. Now if the text really should stop there, it should appear rather odd that just sinning would be described or explained in a hypothetical, if your brother sins. We saw last week, it's inevitable. We will all sin. Sinning, just, just flat out sinning with no qualifier is assumed throughout scriptures um, or these scriptures. It's interesting in 1 John, we read last week, where he says, if anyone says he is without sin, he doesn't know God. The truth is not in him. In that same passage, the only hypothetical given, he says, if we confess our sins. See, he's assuming that we will sin. We will always sin. 
In the book of Hebrews, the author says, if we deliberately go on sinning, it doesn't say if we sin, because it's assumed throughout the Scriptures we will sin. So it, it makes sense that our Lord would use that hypothetical if with reference to a particular kind of sin. If your brother sins against you. Now that, it's not necessarily a requirement in Christian living and assumed that your brother is going to sin against you. But it could happen. It could hypothetically take place. The second line of, of reasoning would be in the text itself, verse 21. Peter gets the first opportunity to chime in, which he usually takes. And it seems like he's beginning or he's carrying out the same line of thought when he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? As if Jesus had just said, if your brother sins against you, Peter responds, if my brother sins against me, how often will I forgive him? And then concluding the section in verse 35, Jesus himself uses this same language when he says, um, verse 35, So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. You see, if you do not forgive your brother. So I believe, again, the, the manuscript evidence plus the contextual evidence plus the language supports that these words against you should be there. You see, I'm trying to prove that this is this specific situation and it should not be applied across the board to every case of, of sin. This is a specific situation where a Christian brother has sinned against another Christian brother. He somehow offended someone else within the church body. Let's look then at this specific situation contrasted. Again, it's a specific situation. And it's important that we establish that it's a specific situation going through those proofs because if we go to another passage talking about church discipline and we use that as our guide, when your brother has sinned against you, then we, we could bring harm to the church, we could bring harm to a brother, we, sh we could hurt someone, we could harm our testimony to the world. And so we need to understand what the rest of the New Testament has to say about church discipline. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul does not remind the church at Corinth about these steps listed out in Matthew chapter 18 when there's a man in the church who's openly, flagrantly, brazenly, brazenly sleeping with his father's wife. He doesn't say, well, go to him privately. And if he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you. And then if he doesn't listen, he doesn't say that. He says in so many words, the next time you're gathered as a church, get him out. Remove him. Make it official in the church. This guy's not one of us. Now that would not be helpful in this specific situation where there's been a private offense nobody knows about it, and all of a sudden the next time we get together he's out. Nobody knows what's going on. You see, that wouldn't work. Uh, Romans 16 and verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Well there he specifically explains what he's talking about. People who cause divisions People who are creating obstacles contrary to sound doctrine. Those people don't have anything to do with them. Elsewhere in the New Testament it says, warn them once and then twice and then have nothing to do with them. Again, a specific situation outlined there. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
verses 14 and 15, Paul concludes that section by saying, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So there, Paul, and if you look at the language and the context, he's, he's saying, cease associations with the unruly, people who are not living according to the pattern. Don't have anything to do with them, but at the same time, don't treat them like you would a lost person. We're not saying that they're not saved because they're not living according to the pattern. We're just saying it's not good to be around them. Warn them as you would a fellow believer, which as we'll see is different than what's being prescribed here. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. Or 19 and 20, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that's very similar to what we're going to see here. But then he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Like Paul did to Peter. He rebuked him to his face in front of everyone to make it certain, to, to make it obvious to all who were there, this man who is a public figure, has been a public figure, he's been publicly displaying a sinful pattern, and so he needs to be publicly rebuked after being charged on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And again, I think the specific situation there is clearly outlined. It is an elder so again, here in Matthew chapter 18, we come back to a different, specific situation. Private conflict between Christian brothers or Christian sisters. Can you see that? Is that fairly clear? You getting, you getting that? Okay. Then we need to understand this specific situation contextualized. Let's follow the chapter. The chapter as a whole, Jesus is addressing sin, conflict, and ethics within the church body. Beginning in verse 6 and going through 10a, he talks about sin in general, temptations to sin from the world, watching out for the temptations to sin, guarding from the temptations to sin, all the way through verse 10a, that you do not fall into temptation and cause someone else to sin. 10b through verse 14, he describes the promise of preservation that God will keep all of His, just like a shepherd and sheep. And in verses 15 through 17, there's another means of preservation, another way that God the Father keeps His people. And here, the teaching no longer has you as the one being warned about temptations to sin. Now the situation is you have been sinned against. So how do you respond? There's all these warnings, watch out, watch out for the stumbling blocks, don't despise one another, but if you are sinned against, here's how you act. Here's how the Father will make sure that His sheep are not so offended that they ultimately leave. So again, by way of summary, this section, verses 15 through 17, is dealing with a specific situation where one professing Christian has sinned against another Christian. And the prescription that's given is for you when you are the one who has been sinned against. What do you do? Not what do you go and admonish other people to be doing. What do you do when you're sinned against? So, point number two then. 
the proper procedure. The Bible says that everything should be done decently and in order, and that does not change with regard to church discipline. So what is the proper procedure if you, or for you, if you are the one who has been offended, you have been sinned against? Well, our Lord gives us four steps. Step number one is found in verse 15b. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step number one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now let's unpack that step, just, just paying attention to what's being said. First, if your brother sins against you, then you go. It's fairly simple. You go. You don't text. You don't email. You don't call. You go. You might call and make sure they're home, but you go. You don't send someone else to go. You go. Go and tell him his fault. Another way of reading it, you go to him. You don't go to the pastor. You don't go to a friend. You don't go to a co-worker. You don't go to a counselor. You don't need anybody's advice. You go to him. If you and that person can get together privately and talk through it, it's usually going to work itself out. You go to him. Go and tell him his fault. The word tell him his fault is one word in the original. It, it is elsewhere used at, or, or translated reprove. When Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching, that word reprove is the same word that's being used here. To reprove is a sharp admonition. It means point out the wrong and prove that it's wrong. Give evidence of the error. Show them. Don't just say, well, I feel like you, you shouldn't have said that. Or, I, I feel like this has happened. No. Show them. This is what happened. This is where God's Word says that you should not have acted that way. Prove it to them. Prove out the error. Go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. You do this privately. The weight of... of the reproof is on you. You can't put it on anyone else. I think this is um, probably uh, alluded to in the Old Testament where if you brought a charge against someone else and it was proven true, you had to throw the first stone. You had to be the, the first one to execute judgment. It's all on you. And so you better be sure that they've sinned against you. The circle of inclusion is to be two people in diameter. Two people. Private. I would add if it's been an offense between a male and a female, that it would be okay for spouses to attend or at least uh, if, if, there's, if you're a single, uh, bring someone else with you, an elder, so that it uh, doesn't look evil or there's not uh, you know, a, a suspicion about what's happening when there's a private meeting between two people of the opposite sex. But if you're of the same sex, go along. Of the opposite sex, take somebody with you to avoid all appearances of evil. So in summary, if your brother sins against you, you go to him. The first conversation that should be had after probably a conversation with the Lord will be a conversation between two people alone. So that's step one. Then we have step two in verse 16. He says, But if he does not listen... 
take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's step two. Now notice that he says, if he does not listen. You see, that assumes that the goal of the original reproof is for him to hear, to agree, to confess, to seek repentance, to reconcile. All of that is summed up in the word hear. You're not just wanting him to hear words. You want him to hear it and receive it and, and follow it. This is assuming a positive response. If he does not give a positive response, if he does not listen, he says, take one or two others. So we have here a second visitation, a second step. Take one or two others. That means when you go back the second time, there will be at least two and at most three people there to point out the error. Take one or two others along with you. That, or for the purpose of, that every charge may be established or every word may be confirmed. So, summarize point number two. After that initial one-on-one -on -one conversation does not produce repentance, the offended party, you are to go back again, second visitation, take with you one person or two people and return to the offender for visit number two. At this, this second meeting, that initial charge, the reproof, and the response will all be viewed and heard and eyewitnessed by at most, or at least two and at most three. You see, there's, you've, you've broadened the circle of diameter so that witnesses can be there to say, he told him, he brought the reproof, he proved it. You want every word to be established. That's step number two. Step number three, verse 17a. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Again, if he refuses to listen to them, he is assuming that, that at least two and at most three have reproved the brother, they have told him his fault, and they have expected for him to hear, agree, confess, seek repentance, seek reconciliation. They, all three of them together, have sought this reconciliation, but if he refuses to listen to them. All three of them have tried now, and he refuses to listen. He does not heed what is said. Now notice Jesus does not say, if he doesn't understand the charges, tell it to the church. He does not say, if he doesn't answer his email, tell it to the church. If he doesn't pick up the phone, tell it to the church. He says if he does, or if he refuses to listen, this person is hearing with their ears what you're saying and they are obstinate against it. They don't want to hear it. They will not reconcile. That's step number three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Those at least two now and at most three witnesses are enough to establish a public charge, an official public charge. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, which is 
um, almost certainly where our Lord is getting his rule. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, we, we read this in family worship last night from a different section dealing with homicide and murder. Our God is a God of truth. He is truth. And so He has placed in His instructions ways that we can bring charges and we can order and structure ourselves and structure these, these types of situations so that truth prevails and dishonesty falls to the wayside. And so you have to have witnesses. And so, if he doesn't listen to the witnesses, all of them having witnessed that he was told, he understood, and he refused to listen, based on the testimony of at least two, or at most three, Jesus says, report this refusal to listen to the gathered assembly, the church, the called out assembly. Now we'll look at this in detail next week. But notice, Jesus doesn't say, report it to the elders. He doesn't say, report it to the presbytery. He doesn't say, report it to somebody else. He says, report it to the church. Tell it to the church. Not the judge, not the police officer, the church. Now think about the authority that Jesus is giving to the gathered church when He says, take your charge not to the elders of Israel, not to the, the leader of the tens or the leader of the fifties or the leader of the hundreds, not to those chiefs of the people. Take it to the gathered assembly. The charge is being brought now to the judge's bench and the judge is the gathered assembly. Tell it to the church. Again, we'll see more about that next week when we see the, the, the use of the keys of the kingdom in verses 18 through 20. That's step number three. Tell it to the church. Step number four. Verse 17b, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, we see the same pattern of words. If he refuses to listen even to the church. What is that assuming? If you've told it to the church, and now we're saying if he refuses to listen to the church, we are assuming that the church body, as a body, has gone to this person now, brought the charges, brought the reproof, and has given him an opportunity to repent and seek restoration. That's that takes time. You see, all of these steps are not going to be carried out in a week. Maybe not two weeks, maybe not three weeks, maybe not a month. The church as a whole has the opportunity to go to the man and say, look, you've sinned. It's been proven from Scripture. Just repent. Confess it, repent, reconcile, make things right. If he refuses to listen even to the church, and I think it's again adds to that authority of the church when Jesus says if he refuses to listen even to the church. That's a, that's a word of emphasis. It's, it's as if he's, he's ascribing to the church body a clout, a weight that one person doesn't have and, and two people don't have and three people don't have. The church body has a weight that he would say he won't even listen to the church, the whole body. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you 
That is, consider him or treat him as you would. Let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. And that little word as, let him be to you as, means just like. Treat him just like you would a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile to a Jewish person. Matthew, a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience, describing or, or giving us the words of our Lord, a Jewish man speaking to his Jewish disciples. Let him be to you like a Gentile. That is, anybody who's not a Jew. Let him be to you like one who is outside of the covenant, outside of the people of God. And tax collectors were sort of the, the, the most crooked, most deceptive of all of the people. Oftentimes of the Jewish people, Matthew himself writing was a tax collector before he was redeemed, remember. Tax collectors oftentimes were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government and they would steal money from their own people. They were considered traitors, backstabbers, dishonest crooks. And so in the fourth step, after the man has been given opportunities to confess and repent by three different groups, the person he offended at least two or at most three witnesses and the entirety of the church body. He's been given all of those opportunities to confess and repent. If he will not, the fourth step is that the church is to officially recognize him just like they would any person who was outside of the covenant, an immoral, flagrant pagan. In other words, as we would say in Christian terms, consider them a lost person. Treat them like they're not one of us. Now, some practical uh, questions that come to mind. Can lost people come to church? Of course. Someone who's been excommunicated, we wouldn't say, no, you can't come in the doors, you can't be here. Now, if there was, there was um, in some cases we've seen in our culture, open criminal acts, uh, uh, sexual offenses and things like that, predatorial things, that would be different. We might say it, it's not safe for you to be here. You shouldn't be here. You are, you are a, a harm to the body. But in general, in a situation like this, a private offense, yes, lost people can come to church. We want them to come to church. Can we meet with lost people for coffee and conversation? Absolutely. We always want those who are lost or considered lost to be in close proximity to the gospel and the people of the gospel, the people of the word, the people of Christ. We want them to hear the gospel. If we're going to consider them a lost person, I hope that you consider all lost people a field of evangelism. So we want them to hear the gospel. This is not Amish shunning where we just say, no, I'm, I have nothing to do with you. You're dead to me. No, you treat them like a lost person. Now, can a lost person partake of the Lord's Supper? No. We don't consider them a part of the covenant people of God. They can't partake of the, the sacrament that, that remembers and proclaims the spilling of the blood of Jesus as the sign of the new covenant if they're not covenant members. Should lost people, this is important, should lost people be coddled in conversations to lead them to believe that their souls are not in danger? The answer is no. That would not be loving to speak to a lost person, someone we consider to be outside of the covenant as if everything's fine. That's not what we do. That would not be loving. Should an excommunicant from the church be welcomed to a fellowship meal after the service? Hey, we're all going to stay and eat. 
stay and eat with us? Well, the answer would be no. Now, why is that? We would allow a lost person to stay, but here the difference is a profession of faith versus no profession of faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, I wrote to you not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, for then you would have to come out of the world. I'm talking about those who are, that, that name the name of Christ, who count themselves brothers, who profess to be Christians, and yet they're living a life that is uh, not in line with Scripture. And so, if someone were excommunicated, we would say, please, continue to come to church. We want you to hear the gospel. But after the service, we're going to have to ask you to leave because this is... We don't want you to think everything's just fine and dandy. Like, we're just going to go on like everything's fine. Our association with the excommunicant should never be for chumming it up. It should be clear that our goal is to see them come to faith in Christ. The intent is to make a pointed statement concerning their exclusion so that perhaps their hearts will long to be included back into the covenant community and they will repent and return back into the fold. So there we have the proper procedure, four steps. And that leads us to the third point then, which is the guaranteed goal. The guaranteed goal. And I do say that the goal, the outcome of church discipline is guaranteed. It is certain. As a church, we can have confidence that when we obey the Word of God, considering or, or uh, pertaining to corrective church discipline, the end goal is a sure thing. Now when I say that, perhaps you've already got in your mind situations where the person did not repent. They had to be removed from the church. They were excommunicated. And you might think, well, does that not prove that the goal is not guaranteed? Perhaps they leave. We've had situations like that here where you go to a person, the first, the first offense, you, you, you give them an admonition or a reproof, and they just leave. They're gone. They, they don't come back. They find out you're serious about the Word of God and about holy living, and they, they don't want that. They don't want that accountability. Wouldn't we say, well, that, that wasn't a win? Well, the answer to that question can only be yes if we're assuming that the goal of corrective church discipline is always, only, ultimately, reconciliation. But what if reconciliation is not the best outcome? What if it's not best that they be here? Consider, just by recap, the two possible outcomes to church discipline in this, in this situation. Corrective church discipline. The first one is that you gain your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That is, that is assumed in every step. Every time you go all the way down to the final church member who goes to that person, if they will listen and repent, you've gained your brother. They're back. That is just a display of the grace of God in church discipline. So you could gain your brother. Or the other possible outcome is that you must expel the supposed brother. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those are the two possible outcomes to corrective church discipline. Now again, we often assume that if we gain our brother, that's the win. Sometimes the word gain here is translated win or won. You've benefited. You've profited your brother. And we assume that if excommunication happens, well, that's always a loss. That's, that's never good or decent or right. But consider... 
not only two possible outcomes, but two presumed implications of those outcomes. What might we presume or must we presume in those outcomes? Having gone through all of the steps, prayerfully, with much prayer and much grace, the first presumption is that your brother is, an, uh, is a repentant believer. If a man hearing of his sin listens to the reproof, he agrees with God's word that he has in fact sinned, he confesses it, he seeks repentance, he seeks reconciliation, he continues to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, we can presume that he is a repentant believer. We presume he's a Christian. And that man, we would say, it's great that he's won back. You should be here. This is the church. This is where you belong. But consider... The other presumption, your brother is an impenitent unbeliever. Imagine that he doesn't repent. He doesn't listen. He, he's hardened in his sin. <coughs> Having gone through all of the steps, again with much prayer and grace, if he's ultimately excommunicated, it's not for the original offense. It's not because he sinned against his brother. We're all going to sin. And, and a sin like this, a sin against a brother, like all sin, merely requires confession, repentance. If he's excommunicated, the expulsion from the church is for the failure to repent. You're commanded to treat him like one who is outside the covenant. Treat him like a sinner. In other words, because of his impenitence, he is presumed to be Lost. Someone who does not repent of sin is not a Christian. That characterizes all Christians. So you have two possible outcomes usually. Either the brother is reconciled or the brother is excommunicated. And we presume in both of those outcomes that he's either a Christian or a non-Christian. And so that leads to the guaranteed goal of corrective church discipline. Those who belong to Christ are clearly marked out. They're clearly marked out. If the goal of everything that we do is just to make sure everybody stays, to get everybody to stay, please don't go, whatever you do, stay here. We're all about the numbers and we want to get our numbers bigger and bigger and bigger so that we can say 200, 300, 400, 500. Well, then we would consider it a loss if we would have to expel an unregenerate person from the church. But if the goal is to purify the covenant community, to secure regenerate church membership, then that lost man's being cast out is not a loss. It's a victory. You see, corrective church discipline is not merely to keep as many people in the church as we can, never checking hearts and never cleansing membership roles, never having expectations, just assuming everybody's fine. If a problem comes up, well, I'll find out about it. But, but other than that, I don't want to know because we want to keep everybody here. Then it's going to be a failure when we have to remove someone. But I would, I would submit to you that that attitude, that we're just going to pretend everybody's fine, we're going to have so many people that we really can't keep track of what's going on, where we really don't know, that attitude, that mentality brings reproach upon Christ. 
It brings reproach upon the church and reproach upon the gospel, which I'll go into more detail in a moment. There is one goal in corrective church discipline, and that is to draw heavy lines in the sand between those who are in and those who are out. And if that is happening, as heartbreaking as it may be, we don't want people to be discovered to be unrepentant sinners. We don't want people to be removed. We want them to repent and to come to faith. But if the line is being drawn and the bride is being purified, we can rest assured that the goal has been achieved. So we have a specific situation. We have the proper procedure and we have the guaranteed goal. Now, three points of application. First, sin must be dealt with. We've seen this over and over. I think this might have been an application point like every sermon in this chapter. Sin must be dealt with. God is holy and His desire is to make His people holy. So sin is the antithesis of everything God's doing. It's the antithesis of holiness. Therefore, it cannot be condoned. It can't be glossed over. It can't be sugar-coated. But now, with this passage, we've brought this into the context of the church and we've seen the effect that sin has within the church. See, when we fail to avoid temptations to sin, which is what Jesus talked about earlier, and we give in to temptations to sin, which is what He talked about earlier, and we sin, we bring that with us into the body because we are members one of another. We are different parts to the same body. And a cancer cannot grow in one part of the body for very long before the other parts of the body begin to be affected by what's happening. You'll remember in the Old Testament, Achan, great example of, of sin and what it can do. What did he do? He stole some silver and some gold and a coat and he hid it in his own tent. But what his, his sin did was brought judgment upon the whole nation. Because of Achan's private sin... 36 men were killed in battle as a part of God's judgment upon Israel. God told Joshua, Israel has sinned. All right, everybody get together. Israel sinned. No, it was just Achan. But it was, it, was, it was ascribed to the whole covenant people. And when his sin was found out, and it says in the Old Testament there, quote, all Israel took part in stoning him and his family. All Israel. Everybody. It's all come together. Here's Achan. He sinned. His kids probably didn't know about it. His family probably didn't know about it. His animals definitely didn't know about it. Now let's all get together, stone all of them to death with stones, and then burn them. It brought reproach upon the community of, of, of God's people, the covenant community, and the covenant community had to take part in the judgment. So sin must be dealt with. Secondly, and in, in, in close association, unrepentant sin must not be tolerated in the church. Unrepentant sin must not be tolerated in the church. As we've seen, unrepentant sin is evidence of unregeneracy. In other words, if you will not repent, if your life is not characterized by a regular changing of your mind about sin, turning from sin and to Christ confessing, repenting, putting to death sin, if that doesn't characterize your life, you're not a Christian. That is Christian when you do those things. 
So it doesn't matter how long a person has been a, a faithful member of the church, how long they've given money, how long they've served in all of these different ministry capacities, different programs, as soon as they stop producing repentance and faith, producing the fruit in keeping with repentance, there's no reason to believe that they've been born again. None whatsoever. We all know people who professed faith and walked away. We, we know those people. Some of them after a week, a, a month, two months. Some of them after 20, 30, 40 years. They just decide somehow they walk away. We've all studied the parable of the, the soils that Jesus gave. Now there are good soils that receive the Word and produce fruit. And there are hard soils that don't receive the Word at all. But there are two soils, a rocky soil and a thorny soil, that do receive the Word, and yet they fail to produce fruit. They are not regenerate hearts. So we all know these types of people. And it doesn't matter the history of a person if their present condition does not testify to the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. We are not obligated to receive or accept their profession of faith. I was talking with Christy last night. See, see, all people are born unregenerate. So we don't assume people are Christians. We assume they're lost until they produce the fruit of a miraculous work in their lives. So we're not obligated to accept a profession of faith. So when politicians say, I want to thank my Savior, or I've been born again, or whatever, I go to church, we don't have to believe that. Give us the fruit. I'm not obligated to believe that. If a, 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 an athlete tramples the Lord's day all the way to the end zone and kneels and points to the sky, I'm not obligated to believe you're a Christian. And I would say, unless that profession of faith has been confirmed by a biblical local church, there's no reason to believe that you're a Christian. Again, we'll see next week, the keys of the kingdom have not been given to the individual. They've not been given to the politician or the athlete or anybody. They're given to the church. The church says, you're in or you're out. Now, we are Baptists. And so as Baptists, we place a lot of weight in the fact that the church is the called out assembly. And we believe that call is the effectual call of the Father through which the Holy Spirit gives someone a new heart. In other words, regenerate church membership is a distinctive of Baptist ecclesiology. You cannot be a member of a local church without being born again and the evidence of that new birth being produced in conversion, repentance, and faith. And having been clearly perceived by the church body. That's why when new people come, we say, you want to join the church? That's great. Attend for three months at least. Let everybody else see you. Let everybody else watch you. Let everybody else talk to you. Because the church has been given the keys of the kingdom. So while we sin regularly, we do. Everybody sins. Habitual, unrepentant sin cannot be tolerated. A lifestyle that is patterned by regular consistent, unrepentant sin without contrition, without brokenness. That's the life of a lost person, not a Christian. Christians don't live that way. Sin does not exist in Christ's physical body. 
He's holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Therefore, as His mystical body, we should aspire to be holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And that leads to the third point of application. The church is to strive for purity. The church is to strive for purity. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I'm going to go through this quick. Jesus laid down His life for the church. He died for the church. Paul said to these same Ephesian elders concerning the church that, he, that God obtained with His own blood. Just like Hosea bought Gomer, just like God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, Jesus bought the church. We belong to Him. We're His ownership. But why? Or we're His possession. But why? What's the purpose? He loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. Christ bought the church with His blood to set her apart from the world, to make her holy. Now what is this process? Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. Jesus bought the church with His blood to separate her and cleanse her, and He does that by the washing of the water with the Word. The water... Water rinses dirt away. It rinses away impurities and imperfections. That's what the Word does for the church. It cleanses. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it cuts. It shears off. In Jeremiah, he says the Word is like a fire. It purifies and, and it burns away the dross and the impurities. It's like a hammer breaking up rocks and chiseling off the unneeded pebbles. The, wor the Word divides and it conquers. He washes His bride with the water of the Word. Now why would He go through this trouble? Well, He finishes there. So that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So if our Lord would die for a bride to see her sanctified, and He sends His Spirit to work through the Word to sanctify her, to wash her, then that shows us that when we use the Word properly, when it's preached and it's applied, it will have that effect. It will have a cleansing effect, a lopping off effect, a, a smashing, chiseling effect, a, a burning effect. The Word of God takes us as a body and it makes us holy, sanctifying us. It separates us from... The world, it purifies us from blemishes. It, it distinguishes us from other groups, other clubs. The Word of God preached includes and gathers. Some people come and they say, I love the Word. I want to be shaped by the Word. Let me sit. And sometimes the Word of God excludes. It scatters. People say, I don't want the Word. I don't want that. I don't want that accountability. I don't want that application. I don't want to be so specific. And so it excludes others. The Word of God purifies the church of God so that the church of God will have credibility when we take the Word of God outside of the church of God. Does that make sense? When we, if we go to the world 
and we have all of the same impurities and all of the same wretchedness and all of the same sin as the world, what we're saying is, come and meet my Savior. He can't do anything for you. His gospel can't change you. His Holy Spirit can't transform you. But it's pretty cool to hang out with people and sing songs that are not in a popular tune. They, their words are kind of hard to follow. Sometimes there are too many words. And then this guy will get up and he'll talk fairly loud about the Bible for an hour and then we'll eat and we'll go home. You should come do that. That's what we're saying to the world. If, we, if we're no different, the Word of God purifies the church of God so that the church of God will have credibility when it takes the Word of God outside the church of God. So, as we come to the Lord's table, I would ask, have you been sanctified? Are you being sanctified? Has the Word of God and the Spirit of God had that separating effect on you? Have, are you being set apart from the world? Has the blood of Christ purchased you to where you would say, I'm a slave. I come back and, and willfully serve you as a servant. The Lord's table is the means by which the church outwardly, visibly affirms and welcomes a Christian into the church. It's how the Lord's Supper is how we say this person's a Christian. Baptism is the door. The Lord's Supper is where we get our ticket punched and we stay. Now, we can be fooled. We have been fooled. We can't see hearts, and that's why I say every week, examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not know this about yourselves that Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? Ask yourself. Don't, don't hear me ask the question. You ask yourself, where is my hope? Where is my trust? On what grounds do I believe I, a wretched sinner, can come boldly to the throne of grace before the God of heaven and earth? What makes me think I could come to Him? He's not raised His scepter to me. Why do I think I can come into His presence? Is the answer Christ? Would you say because of His broken body, because of His shed blood, because of what Jesus has done for me. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I come before you in the name of Christ. If that's so, then come and eat. As the elements are passed, examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith.